Hello everybody. Welcome back to the Washington University Emergency Medicine Journal Club podcast, October 2013. Well, I'm joined today by Dr. Chandra Aubin, Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine here at Washington University School of Medicine, scourge of surgery residents worldwide, known in Mexico by her luchador name, El Medico Loco. Chandra, thanks for joining me. Oh, thank you. Thanks for the lovely introduction. And I am proud of the title of the most hated emergency department attending in the ED by the surgery residents. It's a title to be proud of. <laughs> So this month we talked about cardiac catheterization in post-cardiac arrest patients without ST elevation MI. So patients with ST elevation MI, the current recommendations are to take them straight to the cath lab after their arrest. Uh, but patients without ST elevation MI, there seems to be some evidence that maybe they do better. Certainly the patient who comes in that had a cardiac arrest preceded by crushing substernal chest pain down their left arm, then all of a sudden they go into V-fib, VTAC you get them back, they don't have ST elevation. Do they need to go to the cath lab or not? So we'll jump into the first article, and this was value of post-resuscitation electrocardiogram in the diagnosis of acute myocardial infarction in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest patients, published in 2011 in Resuscitation. This was a retrospective observational study on consecutive out-of-hospital cardiac arrest patients age 18 and older with sustained return of spontaneous circulation. Patients were excluded if they had an obvious non-cardiac cause. I should say that this study was performed in Paris, France, where local protocol is that patients are resuscitated in the field, taken to the local hospital, and if they have return of spontaneous circulation and don't have an obvious non-cardiac cause, they're all taken to the cardiac cath lab. So very different from what we're doing here in the U.S. at most institutions. Patients without an obvious non-cardiac cause were taken for early coronary angiography, the first interpretable post-Roski EKG was evaluated retrospectively by two experienced observers blinded to coronary angiography results, and they were trying to figure out if there were EKG findings, aside from ST elevation MI, that were predictive of significant acute coronary occlusion on the coronary angiography. They enrolled 165 patients in the study and found that ST elevation alone had a sensitivity of 88% for acute angiographically defined MI, with a specificity of 84%. So quite a few patients with acute angiographically defined MI did not have ST elevation alone. If they combined ST elevation, ST depression, left bundle branch block, or nonspecific QRS widening, they found a sensitivity of 100% with a specificity of 47%. So everyone with an acute angiographically defined myocardial infarction had one of those findings on their EKG. The things to note here is that of 46 patients without ST elevation who were positive by these EKG criteria, only 7 or 15% had angiographically defined MI. The other 39 underwent an unnecessary cardiac catheterization. So using this rule in the U.S. seems like it would lead to a large increase in cardiac catheterization rates following out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. A lot of these patients not having any occlusion or any acute MI without obvious benefit to the patients. Yeah, and I think that's a pretty great summary, and I think clearly the system is very different in Paris, France, and the ambulances are actually staffed by attendings, and they actually have quite a large proportion of people that they don't even try to resuscitate. So this was actually a subset of a larger registry in Paris 
where they had 3,500 out-of-hospital cardiac arrest patients over a period of about six years. In about a thousand of them, resuscitation was not even attempted at the scene. And then about another thousand of them were pronounced dead after attempted resuscitation at the scene. So you can see that already you're getting a very highly select patient population that is, as you said, very different from what we do here, where kind of the practice is to hardly ever call the resuscitation at the scene. And most of the time patients are transported and, and uh, the resuscitation is called upon arrival to the hospital. I think the methods were actually pretty good. They had pretty well-defined uh, definitions about what uh, constituted ROSCI. It needed to be 20 minutes of being stable without interventions. They had pretty good definitions of the EKG changes that they were looking at. And obviously the reason that they did this is because it is a standard practice, as you said, to take everybody after arrest with ROSCI to the cath lab, which is clearly a very labor-intense process. And what they're trying to do is actually figure out, hey, can we identify a subset of patients in whom going to the cath lab won't be beneficial? So they're actually trying to decrease the number of patients that they have to take. And as you pointed out, since our practice is not that currently, and our practice is really to only take people routinely if they've got signs of STEMI with ROSCI, this would do the exact opposite to us. And as we kind of found out when we had one of our cardiologists sit in our session with us, um, he was not a big fan of, hey, let's take everybody to the cath lab after Roski. And I think it's also interesting that one of the LSA articles for 2013 is actually the same issue, although not in patients that have had cardiac arrest, but how can we improve the specificity of our EKG interpretation so that we can have appropriate cath lab activations now that the trend is moving towards activating the cath lab from the field and from field EKGs. So I think that it's just kind of interesting that we're looking at EKG findings in a couple of different ways. And from the American point of view, <laughs> we wanna not take people to the cath lab if they're not gonna have anything. And in Paris, they're just like, oh, well, we just don't want to take them to the cath lab after they're dead if they don't have anything. Actually, out of the 165 patients that they included in the study, 43 patients survived to hospital discharge with a CPC a 1 or 2, which is what they consider to be a good neurologic outcome. And that's the measure that's sort of standardly used in all of these articles. And they had eight people that survived with a poor neurologic outcome and 109 non-survivors. So <clears throat> when you start looking at the yield, the yield is pretty low, although I guess if it's your husband and he was one of the survivors, you'd be pretty happy about it and you wouldn't really be worried about the resources that were expended on the other thousand patients that died. All right, so we'll move on to the second article we looked at, Chandra. Okay, so the second article is the immediate percutaneous coronary intervention is associated with better survival after out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, insights from the PROCAT registry, and this was in a Circulation and Cardiovascular Intervention Journal in June of 2010. Again, this is the PROCAT registry, so this is, again, Paris, France. As we discussed before, EMS vehicles are staffed with physicians, and they do a lot of treatment and triage on the scene, and the people that are transported is, again, a very select group. This was an analysis of 714 patients with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest that were admitted to an ICU. They excluded people with obvious extracardiac etiology of arrest, and primarily this was people with respiratory failure, obviously brain injury or metabolic disorder, hemorrhage, things like that. So there was 435 patients who went to emergency coronary angiography. 
134 of those patients had the ST segment elevation MIs that we've already talked before, where it's pretty clear that that's a fairly accepted standard for going to the cath lab, even here in the United States. And of those 134 with the ST segment elevation, they found that 128 of them had at least one significant coronary lesion, and only six of them had no significant coronary lesion. And of the 128 that had significant coronary lesion, 99 patients had a successful PCI, and 35 patients that had no PCI or a failed PCI. Now, there was a group of 300 patients that did not have ST segment elevation. There were 176 of that group of 301 that had at least one significant coronary lesion, and these lesions were at least 50% occlusions, and then whether or not they had characteristics that suggested a recent plaque rupture. Of those 176 in the non-STEMI EKG group, 78 of them had a successful percutaneous coronary intervention, and then 223 of that group, there was 125 of them that did not have an identified coronary lesion, then there were people that again had the unsuccessful or failed PCI. So what's the point of all this? Kind of the end line is that survival was significantly higher in patients undergoing successful PCI compared to those with no PCI or failed PCI. So if you had a successful PCI, you had a 51% survival versus 31%. So clearly, if you have a lesion that is amenable to PCI, you tend to do better than if you've got a worse lesion or no lesion at all, which suggests, obviously, that either you had some other dysrhythmia or myocardial dysfunction where PCI wasn't going to help you. The survival benefit was sustained even in, among that group without ST-segment elevation, which suggests that perhaps our current standard of practice in the United States, where we only take the people with STEMI, we might be missing out on some proportion of people that could potentially survive. Yeah, but the question, of course, is how do we identify those people? And this study doesn't really help us. It doesn't. It just says, hey, look, there's a group of people here that you wouldn't think would survive, and yet they do. And I have to say I'm kind of a therapeutic nihilist, and I probably am a lot more dismal prognosticator about who I think is going to survive in the ED, and I've been proven wrong on more than one occasion, and people have survived when I'm really very surprised about it. Two big things about this study. One is that if you did not have ST elevation on your EKG, there were 301 of those patients, only 78 or 26% of them had a successful PCI. So almost three-fourths of those patients really didn't need to undergo a cardiac catheterization and didn't get any benefit out of it. The study doesn't tell us how to identify that 26% of patients. Who could potentially benefit. Right. The other thing is, great, so if you have a successful PCI, you're going to do better. So that doesn't really tell the doctors what to do. It tells the patients what to do. If you're going to code, make sure that you have a lesion amenable to PCI. Exactly. And so it really has to be an agreement among the different providers that this is going to be our philosophy and this is how we're going to approach it. And you have to have your local practice standard based on what resources are available. But this does suggest to me that perhaps there's a group of people that we are missing by our current policy. Absolutely. So the third paper that we looked at was acute coronary angiography in patients resuscitated from out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. And this was a systematic review and meta-analysis published in Resuscitation in 2012. A lot of the information in this systematic review doesn't really apply to our current clinical question, and I'll kind of hit the highlights and the stuff that does apply. So they've identified five studies in which systematic acute coronary angiography was performed. So similar to the last study that we talked about, these are studies in which everyone who comes in and survives gets coronary angiography. 
They found a prevalence of significant coronary artery disease from 59 to 71%. They found angiographic signs of acute MI in 36 to 69%, uh, wide range in those five studies. The percent of patients with ST elevation MI or presumed new left bundle branch block range from 31 to 63%. What these studies tell us is that there's a significant proportion of patients who don't have a left bundle or ST elevation MI who do in fact have a significant coronary occlusion or an acute MI. Again, doesn't tell us which patients those are. They did a meta-analysis of the studies in which coronary angiography was performed in select patients. So these are studies in which the practitioners selected patients to go to coronary angiography. The use of coronary angiography in those studies ranged from 14% of patients to 83% of patients. They found a pooled, unadjusted odds ratio of survival with coronary angiography of 2.78. 95% confidence interval was 1.89 to 4.1. So they found that there was significant increase in your probability of survival if you got coronary angiography versus if you did not. Now, there was a lot of heterogeneity in these studies. The I-squared was 74%, and unfortunately, the meta-analysis suffered from this heterogeneity. The individual studies likely also suffered from a significant selection bias. So again, these are studies in which patients were selected to go to coronary angiography. So the fact that there's a survival benefit doesn't necessarily tell us a whole lot. Maybe these were the patients that the practitioners thought were more likely to survive and salvageable, so they sent them to coronary angiography versus patients that they thought were not going to survive, were not going to have good neurologic outcomes, were not going to send them. So unfortunately, I'm not sure how we're going to apply those results. Yeah, I agree. I think they really tried to do pretty good methodology. They did a pretty rigorous lit search and used a standard MOOSE and PRISMA methodologies. So I think that they tried to do a good job. And they did find 32 eligible studies, but as you pointed out, I mean, a good proportion of these studies were just case series. There was no randomization, and there's got to be a high degree of selection bias. The largest prospective trial was in 986 patients in 38 hospitals in seven countries, and this was really in a group of people looking primarily at therapeutic hypothermia. They stated that initial shockable rhythm was predictive of a favorable outcome if acute coronary angiography was performed whereas asystole was only predictive of a bad outcome if acute coronary angiography was not performed. It would be really interesting to look at the details of that because classically, most recently, I mean, we're all taught that asystole is a non-survivable rhythm. Don't even try to resuscitate it. And yet we do have patients that are advertised as asystole that sometimes actually do come back. You know, are we giving up too early on some of these folks? In particular, I had a case of a young man who was tased and was advertised as having been in asystole with a downtime of about 45 minutes. And when he got to the emergency department, he did have a rare idioventricular rhythm on the EKG monitor, which with the ultrasound on, he did have some cardiac activity. And we actually resuscitated him and got Roski and cooled him, but I really thought he was going to have a very dismal neurologic outcome. But in fact, he walked out of the hospital with pretty good functional recovery. Yeah, he walked out to spend five to ten years in prison, but he walked out. (laughs) In fact, he did not go to prison, but it was his second tasing event. But he's actually doing fairly well now. There's actually a funny story that goes with that. He was up in the surgical intensive care unit for a couple of days, and he was comatose. They completed the cooling protocol, and he had been unresponsive. And one of my residents wrote, hanging up there, was taking care of him. And he went in a couple of days later, and he noticed the kids seemed to be awake and seemed to be regarding him. And so he walked over to the kid and he said, the standard command we tell people to evaluate their mental status in the ICU, he says, show me two fingers. 
And the kid looked at him and squinted his eyes and stuck up two middle fingers. And we're like, hooray, return to baseline mental status. So, but he actually walked out of the hospital and, and he's actually doing okay and he's a functional kid today. All right, we're going to talk about the last article now. And this was the article that really prompted me to do this journal club. This came out pretty recently in Resuscitation Online. Still hasn't been published in print. Chandra, why don't you tell us about that? Okay, so this is early cardiac cath is associated with improved survival in comatose survivors of cardiac arrest without STEMI. This is really looking particularly at that group that Brian was really interested in. We don't have so much debate about STEMI arrest with Rasky. Those people are going to the cath lab, but it's the group without STEMI. So this was a retrospective observational study of a prospective cohort. So the data was collected prospectively, and it looked like it was fairly rigorous and fairly standardized. It was over several different institutions. So I think the data collection and the hard endpoints seemed pretty legit. But they did actually look at the data retrospectively. So they looked at 754 comatose patients that were treated with therapeutic hypothermia. They only looked at people with VTAC or VFib, and there were 435 patients out of that group. Of those 435, 156 of them had STEMIs, went to the cath lab, but there was a group of 269 of them that had EKGs post-ROSCI that did not show STEMI changes. There were 122 that got early cardiac cath. Of those, 82 did not get PCI, and only 40 of them had a lesion that was amenable to PCI. And there were 147 patients that did not have early cardiac cath, of that group, 41 of those had a late cardiac cath, 25 of those did not have a PCI, and 16 had a PCI. And the kind of big point about this is that if you went to cardiac cath, whether you had PCI or no PCI, just going to cardiac cath itself improved your survival over the patients that did not go to cardiac cath. Yeah, so survival was 65.6% in patients who went to cardiac cath and 48.6% in patients who did not go to cardiac cath. Surprisingly, among those in the early cardiac cath group, successful PCI itself was not associated with an improvement in survival rates. 60% of those who got successful PCI in the early cardiac cath group survived versus 68.3% of those without successful PCI. So it seems likely that there was some other factor besides the cardiac catheterization that led to these improved outcomes. And we looked at a study where it said that if you got PCI or if you had a lesion that was amenable to PCI, you did better than if you didn't have a lesion that was amenable to PCI. But this one's actually saying that just going to cardiac cath, whether you have a lesion that's amenable to PCI or not, improves your survival. So I think that we have to look at what other things were associated with this early cardiac cath. People that had early cardiac cath were more likely to receive mechanical support, including intraoric balloon pump, more likely to get aspirin, antithrombin agents, G2B3A inhibitors. And so perhaps in this study, the early cardiac cath was really just a marker for a more aggressive level of care than people that did not get early cardiac cath. Also, given the retrospective nature of the study, it seems quite likely that there was some selection bias playing a role. So patients suspected of having a better prognosis may have been referred for cardiac cath, whereas those in whom aggressive care was felt to be futile would be treated more conservatively. One thing they don't tell us about these patients is what percent had a history of prior coronary artery disease, prior MIs. Or what, comorbidities. Or comorbidities, like cancer. So if a patient had terminal cancer and arrested, 
they were going to be less likely to be referred for cardiac catheterization, of course, and more likely not to have a good neurologic outcome. Absolutely. A question that occurred to me is exactly what kind of resource expenditure might you be talking about for a particular hospital? So if you go back to the first study, which has a really good tree about the numbers of -of out-of-hospital cardiac arrest and breaks it down to the numbers of people that arrived alive to that hospital, they had about 235 patients over a six-year period that arrived with Roski after out-of-hospital arrest. About two-thirds of them went to emergency coronary angiography. And what their survival was for that over six years, they had 43 patients out of the initial 165 that went to emergency coronary angiography that survived. So roughly what you're talking about is you're taking 30 patients a year at this institution to emergency coronary angiography. And out of those 30, you're going to get maybe six good neurologic outcomes. So you have to decide in your institution if that seems like a reasonable amount of resource allocation. And remembering, again, that in this first study, that included people with changes consistent with STEMI. Yeah, so if you exclude the STEMI patients, you're talking about an even smaller percent of survivors with quite a bit of resource expenditure to take them all to the cath lab. Right. So, and that's kind of what my conclusion was from all of this data. We know that there's a certain subset of patients without ST elevation MI who have lesions and probably are going to benefit from cardiac catheterization. Problem is, we don't have a lot of evidence telling us which patients those are and how to identify them. And you have to have buy-in from your cardiology group that this is the way that we're going to handle and approach it, so it's going to need a lot of collaborative practice. I don't think anyone who was president in our journal club wanted to do that. I don't think any of the residents or attendings from the ER who were there wanted to send everybody to the cath lab. I think they kind of agreed the evidence doesn't really tell us that those patients do well. Despite this last article, which shows uh, benefit from cardiac cath, it seems to be not the cardiac cath itself that provided the benefit, and everyone kind of poo-pooed it. But I think the interventional cardiologist, I think his response was actually pretty good. It was, yeah, if there are patients in whom the story is concerning and who you have a high clinical concern, we might be willing to take those patients to the cath lab emergently, which is probably a step up from where we would have been before this journal club. Yeah, and I agree. I think that perhaps we've made a little small step towards changing practice. Certainly, you have with me, Brian. So kudos for an excellent journal club. I thought your article selection was great, and uh, the discussion was really good. Well, thank you, Sandra. All right, guys, that's all we have today. Thanks again for joining us as usual. Don't forget to check out the website, emjclub.com. Follow us on Twitter. We're at emjclub. And if you like what we're doing, go on to iTunes and subscribe. And there's a link on the website so you can go straight to the subscription, subscribe to the podcast, and get them all automatically. Thanks for listening in as usual, and we'll see you next time. Bye.